Hello, freaks, and welcome to Radical Research. Before we get started with episode 33, which we are calling Men Behaving Badly, Trashed Productions, we'll explain all that in a bit. I thought it might be a pertinent time to announce that I'll be writing uh, my third book, which will be a book on Voivod. It's going to be what I hope will be the definitive book on Voivod. I've got the band's cooperation and support, and they gave me the green light a few months ago. Been working on it really hard. I just announced it on the um, Radical Research Facebook page by sharing something from my personal page on Facebook. Uh, but I don't know if it reached everybody that listens to this program because I know I realize that not every Radical Research listener is on Facebook. So, um, as you guys know, Hunter and I are worshiping always at the altar of Voivod. So this is a big thing for me. And uh, I'm going to try to make it as great a book as possible for everybody who loves this band as much as we do. Should be out early 2020, mid 2020 at the latest. And uh, please leave me alone so I can finish it up. (laughs) Let's get this out of the way then. I kid. Yeah, let's get this thing out of the way. Let's let's just breeze through this fucker. How you been? Fine. Yeah? Well, what was your last listen, your last album listen, just off the cuff? Or you're not listening to music anymore? I don't really do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, my iPod was on shuffle earlier. Oh, okay. And I think because I, I was riding into town and often I do that. It's kind of like a radio station. And um, a track by Medicine, who were a got early to mid-90s American shoegaze, noisy, art rock kind of band, um, their song Aruka came on from uh, their first album, and I remembered how much I liked that band. Okay. Uh, you probably saw them mentioned in the pages of Metal Maniacs back in the day. Catherine, Catherine Ludwig was a big fan. And um, I've heard you bring so up medicine before, too. And yeah. they were on the Crow soundtrack as well. So, Well, that's very interesting. Yeah. That's one of those bands I've always heard you talk about, but I, um, I don't think you've ever shared them with me. Or if you have, I've forgotten, and which means I probably <laughs> didn't get into it. <laughs> probably got other things to listen to really so um the subject of this episode is something that hunter and i have talked about i mean for years really when we talk about certain albums and um we decided to just go with metal albums on this one and it's basically about what i guess we could call bad productions right well yes um but there are two hemispheres to that world um one is like i i think we're pretty safe to say that all of the songs that we're going to feature, all the productions we're going to feature are unintentionally bad sounding in a way. But some of the albums actually benefit from the weird slash technically bad sound and some suffer from it. Yeah. So that's what we're going to kind of get into. On yeah. This and I think of the 10 snippets and the 10 examples we're going to play here, and there were many more, and we'll probably talk about some of those that we're not playing, but the ones we selected just for this example, we're going to wait the good ones kind of toward the front here, kind of listen to those and talk about why, even though the productions are 
maybe technically flawed or have come in for a lot of criticism, uh, why they work for us. Uh, and then uh, there's a couple, I think, uh, later on that we maybe might even disagree on in terms of how well they work or not. Uh, and then there's just some pretty blatantly awful ones that we'll, uh, we'll have fun with. But uh, the first one is Black Sabbath's Born Again. This is an infamously botched production. The band, of course, it was the original three uh, instrumentalists plus Ian Gillen on vocals from Deep Purple, the only album, of course, that he sang on. Both Hunter and I think this is one of the best Sabbath albums, period. Um, Love this album. Yeah, and I, and I think, I don't know if you agree, but I think Tony Iommi at this point was just so scarring and noisy with his leads. Every, everything about, I always said that this record sounded like it had a fever. <laughs> um, and, and, and every yeah, you're right. I mean, Iomi's punishing. Ian Gillen sounds like his throat is literally being ripped out for half the album. Yeah, um, yeah. I like how everything you know. And I'm a, a like a, obviously a huge um, detractor of like modern brick wall kind of productions and, and mastering jobs. Oh yeah, same. But this, the, yeah, but th- this album like everything's in the red, including the album cover. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. <laughs> like, and, and, but it really truly works. In a way that only an accident could. No one could premeditate this production. Yeah, yeah. And I want to quote Tony Iommi from his autobiography because he's talking about Born Again. And um, I know I've read a geezer quote prior to Tony's book coming out where um, it was kind of the same sentiment and same memory, which was this. Iommi says, we just thought it was a bit of a funny sound, but it went very wrong somewhere between the mix and mastering and the pressing of that album. The sound was really dull and muffly. I didn't know about it because we were already out in tour in Europe. By the time we heard the album, it was out and in the charts, but the sound was awful, end quote. And uh, I remember Geezer kind of saying a similar thing as when they everything was pretty much done. It, it might have been the final master, in fact, I think that they got. So maybe they're out of the studio, they're listening to it at home or something. They got a copy, whatever. And they just couldn't believe how bad it sounded because it wasn't what they thought they were recording and putting it's, down on it's, tape. It's not Martin Birch. You know, it's definitely not Martin Birch. It's actually a guy named Robin Black. Uh, yeah, and, it's a pretty interesting story there. Too. Yeah, and the band. But there's a guy named yep. Robin Black credited. He was also an engineer on Sabbath's Sabotage album and Technical Ecstasy album, both which I, I think are excellent sounding records. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it's the three original instrumentalists, and you've got this guy who's goes back to 75 with them. Yeah, and, and we get this very particularly unique record in their discography. Nothing sounded like it. But let's... Let's listen to what we're talking about. And I think the very first emanations from Born Again, the leadoff track, Trashed, uh, really tell the tale about how this album sounds. We'll talk about the actual sound after we uh, sample the little snippet here.
Bonkers. Completely. The dirge there and the dirt and the grime and the darkness. I mean, that's all as Black Sabbath should sound, right? And especially this Black Sabbath sounds particularly desperate. Yeah. Um, I mean, Black Sabbath's usually a sort of patient band. Heavy, you know, doom-laden. Um, but, like, they, they take their time with their arrangements. This has a sense of urgency about it that I think makes it unique in the Black Sabbath canon as well. Yeah, it does feel a little bit gonzoid. And, um, you know, there, there are different shades throughout the album. You get to the title mm-hmm. track, which I think is this gorgeous expelling of, of emotion, especially on Ian Gillen's part. Um, but we still get that really muddy, muffled sound that marks this album. Again, it's and it's really been a love or hate production for a lot of people. I, I don't know, and I and I think you bring up a great point with like, yeah, they they sound so desperate here. It just really matches uh, the vibe, and um, I wouldn't want this album to sound any other way. And really, oh, no. it wouldn't be the album if it sounded any other way. And I, I think you have to look at Volume Four uh, back from '72 and like. Think about, well, that wasn't the most crisp sounding album either, but I think it's also a thing of expectations where by 1983, people were expecting maybe something a little crisper and clearer, right? Well, yeah. I mean, and even like Iomi's lead tone there sounds very, you know, solid state versus the, you know, the analog tube warmth of the early days. I mean, even the the DOR albums. Yeah. Yeah. I I love the noise of Born Again uh, and um, I'm glad you agree. (laughs) <laughs> it's one of those out it, like like in trash too like it's one of those instances like uh you know like psychedelic era monster bag that are death spell omega where it sounds like there's always something just going on yeah. um and, and in that case in the case of born again i mean it's almost sort of like all these um these sort of like residual sounds you know artifacts from the the actual output of the instruments yeah it does seem like there's a lot of stuff just like bouncing off of the walls just reverberations and and just you know ghost noises and yeah it's and that that's a fun listen that's a you know if you want a heavy listen i mean you sure you can always turn to sabbath but um especially this one because think about what they did after you know seventh star eternal idol oh yeah i mean those productions are nothing like this not even close no yeah Um, but that's that's the great thing about sabbath too is how many different shades of sabbath they gave us thank you black sabbath no kidding. Um, when I listen to Sabbath, I'm always like, "Is there a better band?" No, nah, yeah, exactly. No, they kind of reign supreme when, when they're yeah. when they're on. Let's move to Morbid Angel. You picked this one especially. I'm not sure I would have gone for this album or band with this show, but I think you t- you tend to think Blessed Are the Sick got a lot of flack for its sound. You want to describe that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, in fact. And, and I think that even Thomas Lindbergh made this remark that Blessed of the Sick might have been single-handedly responsible for the second wave of Norwegian black metal. Wow. <laughs> because, um, because it was this, you know, sort of antiseptic, technically sound, morbid angel versus, you know, the feral insanity of Altars of Madness. Um, I, I, like, just call bunk on all that. To me, like, this album like really, really benefits from its production. It's got this weird suffocated vacuum vibe about it. It does. Um, that I yeah. love. I love the guitar tone. Yeah. Um you know the 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 drum set the drums are obviously very slickly produced. You get that, you know, more sound typewriter bass drum, even though this is Tom Morris and and, and not Scott. Um but uh still to to me this album 
like the material of it, the grandiosity of it. It's very, very ambitious. It's almost like mystical metal to me. Yeah. Um, it, it's death metal, but it's completely outside of the realm of death metal circa 1991. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and I think um, the production oddness because it definitely does have an odd production it's, you know? it is odd i'm so. with you there i like the example of Lindbergh there too but um, for me morbid angels type of death metal what they were doing was this otherworldly sort of thing and i think this production lens is probably the most otherworldly that this band ever had sure because um, they yeah. they would tend to go a little earthier with the rest well yeah they i mean they got fleming rasmussen um involved on the who who will feature in this show, incidentally? <laughs> uh, but they got him involved for Covenant, yeah. and it's that's a very warm, earthy production. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, so I like where they went with Blessed. I like the material, and I, I I'm with you. Love the sound. Let's take a sample of the Ancient Ones. Yeah. 
Morbid Angel, circa 1991. Definitely their most curious production. It was produced by the band and engineered and mixed by Tom Morris, who we all know from Morrisound. Tom has done less work on metal albums than his brother Jim, though. He's not as well known of a name as Jim. And I wonder if he can be blamed or credited with uh, some of that sound being an engineer. Because, you know, we we talk about production a lot, but engineering has just as much to do with the sound outcome, right? That's the... I mean, really, they're almost two separate functions. I mean, yeah. the engineering is the sound itself. Yeah. And the production is the manipulation of that sound. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we're probably talking about a lot of engineering, either flaws or just curious choices <laughs> here. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. And then in some cases, the mixing and mastering, like Iomi said him, himself of Born Again, uh, he, he felt that was maybe uh, at the mastering stage. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it sounds like a mastering problem. Right, right. Well, so redlined. Right, we need to find out who that master was and thank him. Send, send him, <laughs> send him a gift. Thank um, you, <laughs> we move on to Dark Angel and their 1989 album Leave Scars, uh, their third album, the first one with Ron Reinhardt on vocals. Um, this one has also come in for a lot of criticism with its sound. I wouldn't want it any other way. It's very- I wouldn't take this album any other way yeah it's similar to born again in that there's just a lot of information and muffle uh and noise and just really kind of a suffocating atmosphere really that lends itself well to what dark angel does and there's everybody knows that's really some of the heaviest darkest thrash you could possibly imagine yeah and they were you know they were starting to sort of develop as players too like in moving toward sort of the the riffiness um and the uh Almost like Time Does Not Heal almost has like a proggy aspect in some senses. Well, just in um, terms of how much information is being yeah. thrown at you and the, the number of riffs and, of course, the maze-like arrangement that has to happen with your when you're you yeah. know, trying to wield that much material, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so it kind of catches Dark Angel at this weird inflection point between the, the madness of Darkness Descends and the fully evolved dark angel that we hear on time does not heal and it confuses things with this super like you use the word suffocating which is perfect this like suffocating oppressive production sound yeah and i and i think when things are starting to get busier with their riffing and um everything that kind of you're speaking to when you put this kind of production on top of it it does become a bit disorienting there's spots on this album where i just in a glorious way i think it's just like what is going on there? Like, I can never figure out what is, like, I can never pick it out. It's just so obscure. But um, we're going to check out the final song in the album, the title track, uh, to give you uh, just a bit of a ear into what's going on here.
Dark Angels leave scars from the album of the same name. Just a ugly mush of swampy noise. I mean, the whole thing's pretty much an ugly mush of swampy noise. Very heavy. I think that's what it like makes it so extraordinary too. It's got it does have this like very oppressive quality, and and from I mean, frankly, one of the darkest, deathliest thrash bands ever. Yeah, they're they're already pretty formidable and pretty damn heavy without that sort of production. But um, this production, whether intentional or not, works so well. And and um, let's note who helped with the production. This was uh, produced by the band and a guy named Michael Monarch. Uh, it was engineered by Michael Monarch, Earl West, and Paul Gordon. And this- Michael Monarch certainly well known to all fans of radical research (laughs) yeah well he will be now Uh, this is the only (laughs) metal album he ever produced as far as i can tell who the fuck knows how he became involved because his other claim to fame is as a member of steppenwolf in their 1968 1969 era right yeah the era that produced like some of their most enduring hits or their only enduring hits maybe well sure i mean yeah that was probably the, the 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 apex of their career in a lot of ways and um wow like how did how did he become interested in Dark Angel? How did he become linked? We we don't know, but that's kind if of. If anyone fun. does know, though, reach out to us. I'll tell you, it was probably answered in some interview in Snake Pit magazine, but I just don't remember. <laughs> I, my snake pits are in storage. So <laughs> exactly. I'm just gonna dig right. them out. Right, right. I miss Don Doty like a little bit because that guy is just so completely unhinged. Oh, yeah. But Re- Reinhardt sounds really formidable on that track. Uh, the, the whole album, really. Even though he's a more conventional singer, like I think he slips into the, you know, into the, the fray very nicely. Oh, I, I think he did a great job. I'm also a Doty fan more than a Reinhardt fan. But uh, look, it's like splitting hairs. It's like it's like John Arch, Ray Alder argument. Like they're both pretty great and they both worked well for the material they were singing over. Right. So, um, yeah, pretty great, man. Dark Angel, uh, all four albums are pretty special. We move on to Mayhem. This is, along with Ulver, because we're going to play Ulver in this show, spoiler alert, this is now the third time they've been on an episode of Radical Research. So, clearly we like Norway. (laughs) (laughs) Which is completely redundant to say for any long-time listeners, but uh, we, we really do worship the country's musical output. So this is um, this is a very contentious record, uh, I think, in terms of material and production. But, man, the production just uh, sort of overtakes 
everything when when you hear people talk about it well and i feel like the production itself distorts the quality of the music and and to like to such a degree that people could just be completely swayed by that i feel like people maybe aren't even hearing everything in the music because of the extraordinarily weird production on this album you've said you've had some problems with this album i i it was um over time i have grown to love this album but let me tell you it was a concerted effort on my part yeah. When it came out, I was super cold to it. Even though like I heard um, ideas and influences from other things that I really liked, it was a really tough sell for me early on. I, and I think for everybody that heard it. I mean, we were coming off of Chimera, which was coming off of Grand Declaration of War. And if there's one thing beyond Blasphemer's guitar work, it's really his production aesthetic because he's involved in kind of how Mayhem you know, sounded uh, right. texturally throughout the, all those eras. And, and like Grand Declaration and Chimera are quite a bit cleaner, quite a bit more sort of, I don't know, state of the art. Chimera, like, especially so. It's, yeah. a, it's a very clinical sounding album. And then Attila comes back into the fold. I don't know if his participation was a catalyst for this production. In a way, it might have been just simply because he's credited along with Blasphemer as producer. Right. Um, the album was mixed by Newt Valley and the band. And I think Ordo Adkeo is maybe even more of a mastering issue, kind of like Born Again. Right. Although knowing Blasphemer, it's all very deliberate on every level, mixing, engineering, production, mastering. Yeah, it's, it's almost like a concealed record where we'll never able to be able to hear it like beyond this layer of murk. It's, like, it's almost like subliminal at a certain point, and impressionistic maybe even. Yeah, it's one, it's one of the most cobwebby, obfuscated yes. sounds of, of any metal album. It, it's pretty awesome. And I think it really gets it into the noise of experimental avant-garde in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. It, it's just that challenging, I suppose, and that off-putting at first. I love it. I think we love it. Um, yeah, we, lo- we love it. This is Great Work of Ages from Ortoad K.O.
Yeah, that's just a little taste of an album that um, keeps you guessing, keeps the question marks right at the forefront. You get no answers from Ordo Akeo. <laughs> yeah. And, and too, like, you don't really get to hear it uh, a ton in that clip. But, like, that album features some of Hellhammer's most vexatious and astounding drum work, which is saying something coming off of Grand Declaration of War. Um, but, I, you know, it's, it's weird and mutated as, like, Ordo Akeo is. I think there's like an unbelievable amount of detail that went into the composition of a lot of these parts. Oh, definitely. Well, that's what keeps the album so interesting for me is every time I sit down and listen, I get through another layer. I don't think I'll ever kind of peel it all off. Uh, yeah. And another thing needs to be said about the packaging. Um, I'm not sure what other versions are out there. Out there, I haven't seen them or looked at them, but um, I have this version that comes housed in like this um, die cut metal box. But if you open that up and take the jewel case out, the booklet is basically just page after page of this kind of like weird, obscure, dark, staticky, kind of unclear, digital looking. It just looks how it sounds basically. Right. You know, it's, it's hard to penetrate. It's hard to fathom. So, um, yeah, man, kudos to, to that one. Here's another quote unquote bad production that, that really works. Now, when we talk about bad production, like think about Bathory's early albums and how those were, they sounded the, that way just because it was a result of really resources, I think, and um, kind of being a one-man show or two-man if you count Boss. And that kind of created the aesthetic unwittingly for you know what became black metal, especially what the Norwegians picked up on in the early 90s. But we're not featuring that here too much because we could go through a bazillion black metal releases and kind of enjoy or laugh at or something the uh you know the production aesthetic like something like a Stryborg or a zaster or sure. you know what yeah. have you i mean uh, what's what's the one oh ill yarn yeah ill yarn strid um yeah yeah all that yeah. we're not going to do that because that's just that's that's kind of this intentional aesthetic and everybody knows it. But there's one album in the black metal pantheon, especially the Norwegian one, that's pretty infamous and has to be discussed here. And that's Olver's third album. Yes. Nottin's Magical. It, I think we'll that's keep... the mythology around it. Well, yeah, I was going to say there's mysterious circumstances regarding the recording of this one. And we'll just keep it a mystery because I don't think anyone still really knows. And I think anything Olver will tell you could be just taken with a grain of salt and be bullshit, you know. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't believe him for a second. <laughs> in terms of it being recorded out in a forest or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. yeah. Things recorded, yeah, but, but I mean, it was, it's one of the like more puzzling moves in the late '90s, like black metal scene. You know, everybody was sort of, it was evolving. I mean, these, you know, the the key players had been doing it for you know four or five years at this point, and Olver's first album is a very approachable, melodic, even maybe accessible black metal album. Yeah. And after Kvelsanger, I think everyone sort of expected them to just keep evolving into more and more melodic territory, maybe even do something, you know, even sort of remotely commercial. And instead, they bring Nottin's Magical to the table. I mean, one of the most feral performances of any black metal album, for sure. You know, and, and no one ever really talks about this because they tend to focus on the sound of it, but like the endurance required to play this as a single piece too. Like <laughs> Yeah. I, yeah. And I I'm I'm impressed. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the guitarists have to be, you know, near carpal tunnel syndrome at the end of it, it right? Too like, I mean, the drums are just basically one static blast. <laughs> Garm, too. I don't think people. Oh, talk, yeah. I don't think people talk enough about the music in Ulver through all their phases because Garm always seems to be the focal point. But I gotta say, this is utterly fantastic vocal performance right here. Yeah, desperate. Yeah, it's amazing. The other stealthy thing about Naughton's Madrigal is the melody. There's a lot of melody here. It's almost pure melody. If you if, if you rip away all the distortion and the redlining and all the and the blast beats, like I mean, it really, it's just one melody after another. And at first, it's a this was a beautiful record. It is a beautiful record. At first, this was a tough listen for me because I, my ears had to get used to it. I was used to what Necro was and was supposed to be. Uh, but this sort of is Necro on a kind of a different, <laughs> deeper level, really. Like when you killed the dead. I'm not saying, yeah, but I mean, like something like Ildyarn is way more raw and way more lo-fi. This this tricks you because this is this screams lo-fi at you at first, and then you start to realize it's actually quite quite a well-evolved album. Oh yeah, I mean it has a depth that most other conspicuously necro albums do not. Exactly. Let's take a listen to track eight. Yeah. 
You know, one thing that I've never taken away from Notton's Madrigal until we were playing that snippet is that some of those melodies really come from the early dissection, early at the gates playbook, really. Oh, yeah, yeah, especially like the Alf era at the gates. Yeah. Well, I had a really interesting approach to two guitars. For sure. And I also hear a little bit of maybe early 90s Greek black metal Oh yeah, uh, in vibe. But um, yeah, man, Ulver is, uh, of course, unto their own. Pretty special. Uh, we kind of move into the part of this episode that's going to feature some more questionable productions. And it's these are, I think, a little more highly debatable whether they work. You so, your- like, let, let's just be honest. Like, some of them, and I think we can agree on at least two or three of them that just do not work. Oh, no. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we will address. Um, this next one is a little bit... I I go back and forth between this one. This is Suffocation's Breeding the Spawn, their second full length. Came out in the magic year of 1993. You tend to think this production is just fine, right? Yeah, I do. And And I'll tell you why. The material for this album... It's so much more technical to me and so much more complex that having the thinner production and I and I'm not honestly like I don't think it was intentional, but but nonetheless, the character of the production um, sort of lends to a, a transparency um, for me to hear everything. Mm. Um, and I think if there were a heavier production, some of those riffs would be muddled by it. Not only that, but they got a new bassist, uh, Chris Richards, and, and his stuff all over, all over this album is so great. And it, even some albums that, like, say, Tony Choi is on, like um, Testimony of the Ancients by Pestilence, which is one of my favorite death metal albums, period. I wish he was coming out just a little bit more on that. Sure. Um, I could say the same thing for the first Atheist album, which we I wish we heard a little more Roger Patterson. Yeah, but that's you don't, particularly sad. Yes, of course. We don't have that problem on Breeding the Spawn. No. Because he's just... Yeah, he's right there. That may be a problem some people have with it. My problem has been sometimes that it feels like they're just in a cage or like a plexiglass cube, right? Right. It's just not... It's just not coming out. And again, that could be a mastering issue. I haven't heard or even know if they've remastered it. I've got the original 93 disc, you know. So do I, and I don't think they have remastered that. Feels like maybe they should try because it, it might help. But but as you say, maybe maybe that would take something away for you. Like it is admittedly very weird sounding, but I, I no, I, I do. I don't know. There's something about it that works for me. This was produced by a guy named Paul Bagan and the band. Uh, Paul Bagan also engineered and mixed. Not a name that many people know. Not a huge list of metal bands that he worked with. I'm assuming that Scott Burns was booked because... (laughs) Well, yeah, of course. Because Scott Burns produced Effigy of the Forgotten and then the one that came after this, Pierced from Within. And nobody has any real complaints about the sound on those, or at least they shouldn't. Either way, Suffocation has a weird sound, and this production makes it a little weirder, I suppose. We also get a great made-up word, decrepancy. Um, <laughs> and they, they, have, they have some funny song titles uh, on the same album as Epitaph of the Credulous. Name your next favorite one. My next? Oh, Marital Decimation. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that one always like really cracks me up. But you, you, you know... And, we wanted to stick to talking about productions and aesthetics here, but I got to go off on a little tangent okay. here. Um, Frank Mullen's lyrics are extremely good. Like they they're, are. they're very artistic and creative and, and even poetic. And I, 
I don't think he gets enough credit for that. I don't think people think of him that way. Well, I, you know, I didn't get into suffocation back in the day because they were so maligned by all the people that I trusted. Mm. Uh, it wasn't until we got into Akrakaki with uh, words that go unspoken. Yes. Um, and then, it, like, coincidentally, for me at least, Nathan got that reissue of Pierce with it from within. And we started listening to that. And I was like, these guys are great. Yeah. You know, I've been missing this. Well, we talked about our journey with suffocation. Mine is somewhat the same, but probably more due to burnout in 1991. Because I think by 91, I had already ingested a ton of at least, you know, the new death metal, but definitely some of the formative stuff as well. Right. In fact, most of it, because I was really tuned into it early on. And, and uh, by 91, you were starting to get already a lot of carbon copies or B-rate things. And I think I was just exhausted. I was tired, you know. So by the time something like Effigy of the Forgotten came out or Gore Guts Considered Dead, like it just, I just had had enough almost, you know. So when I went back to Suffocation at that same time you talk about when we got into that Akrakaki record, I love them. You know, I love, I certainly love Human Waste and Effigy. Uh, Those are my two favorites. But yeah, I like Breeding. I like Pierced. How can you not? Uh, but it, it, I got to say, Frank didn't write all the lyrics for Suffocation, but the ones that he did, I think, are clearly better than all the others. Um, so check him out if you have the booklets or, of course, the Oracle Metal Archives. This is pretty amazing stuff. This is Ornaments of Decrepancy.
I think something like breeding the spawn also sounds different to me depending on the kind of system I play it on. Right. Uh, and, and, and that makes a lot of difference with something like that where – uh, it, it sounds pretty damn good, actually, coming out of, like, the big hi-fi, you know. Um, it, oh, yeah. Everything sort of coalesces a little better. If I listen to it on, like, the iPod and, like, a smaller little Bose speaker or something like that, like, it, its flaws come out a little larger, a little more uh, clearer, which is, sometimes it's the opposite, you know. I mean, playing uh, early Metal Massacre compilations on the hi-fi system is, you know, really, really reveals a lot of the flaws of that stuff <laughs> recording wise you know right so we move on this one's interesting this is a little combo originally out of la moved to san francisco that never quite got their due a band called metallica check them out yeah check them out man they're pretty good um, i mean i tell you if, if you see them out just get them a beer and say how'd you boys get together <laughs> get some answers <laughs> metallomania reference number six i think that's awesome <laughs> Yeah, this this one, um, this is injustice for all we're talking about, of course, because uh, I you know I don't think anybody can have too many problems with the production of the uh, the first three albums, and for what it's worth, whether you like it or not, the black the album, fifth, yeah, the black album is superbly produced, especially for the material that's coming at you. Um, but but yeah, injustice for all always sounded a little weird. I, I think one of the main reasons we all know why we probably don't have to dwell on it too much was um, the bass sound or lack thereof. There's no bass. Yeah, it, it's. I mean, it, like essentially, there is no bass. It's phantom, you know. It is. You can kind of tell it was there at one point, but it's just like it's like an afterimage or something. It's annoying. When this album came out, I didn't really notice it because thrash was getting a little. How shall I put it? It was kind of going that way. It was cleaner. It was getting cleaner. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Things were finer. But over time, it's it, it was frustrating, and I'm sure it was frustrating for Jason Newstead. It, it's it's something that's talked about so much out there that we probably don't need to dwell on it. But um, there's something about this that also works, right? Yes, I think you describe this as thrash in a vacuum, kind of what it sounds like. Yeah, it's literally like all the low end sucked out of this album. <laughs> so, but 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 when you say that it works. It works for precisely that reason, because it foregrounds the very, very sharp riffing, um, Lars's best performance, I would say. Mm. Um, and, and even like reckoning with material that's probably a little bit beyond his means. Sure. Um, but I still like I. I think Lars makes some really, really cool choices on this album. I, I would agree with that. You and I are both behind him in this era. I, I have no no real problem with him. Yeah, and, and I think the technical direction they were going, it was intentionally colder. Sure. And it works on that level. Um, and, yeah, let's just uh, remind ourselves, because I think we probably all heard this, but let's remind ourselves of, of how this thing sounds. Deadly nicotine Just a lot of beer 
Yeah, that last moment is definitely nice. And if you compare that to Ride, The Lightning, and Master of Puppets, I mean, those have a much more ro- uh, robust, round, impactful sound. I guess I wish this album had that, but it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, Master has a very, yeah, very warm sound. I, and the thing I love about Ride the Lightning, too, is that it has so much atmosphere. Oh, well, it it yeah. certainly has a fuller sound, but, I mean, it just has a vibe about it. Yeah, I mean, I could I could talk hours about that one. That's I mean, that's to me, that's about as perfect as a metal album gets. There's a couple others out there, but uh, yeah, hold that one on a high, high pedestal for sure. Yep. Um, just for the record, especially for this show, uh, that was produced by Metallica and Fleming Rasmussen, engineered by Fleming Rasmussen, who of course worked with them on Ride the Lightning and Master as well, mixed by Steve Thompson and Michael Barbiero, and, and some will claim some meddling by Lars Ulrich and James Hetfield. I, I guess the world awaits for a restored bass present reissue, but um, I've read some parties say that that won't happen, some parties involved, uh, and that it would probably be impossible without an actual re-recording of the bass. We move to Possessed, uh, another San Francisco band. Their second album is decent material-wise, quite quite good, actually. I mean, it's hard to follow up a debut like Seven Churches uh, and all that that album means. But, man, Beyond the Gates, I, I want to love it so much more than I do simply because I've always had a hard time getting past the, the sound of the guitars. It's so, it sounds like garbage. It sounds like garbage. It really does. <laughs> it's so hollow. I mean, there's just no power, right? Yeah. And, and I do think the material is pretty good. The material is very good. Let's talk about the parties responsible for this thing. It was produced by Carl Kennedy, also known as drummer for the Rods, and then engineered by John Cunaberti and Tom Size. But it's got to be Carl's fault because let's, let's look at his resume a little bit. Um, <laughs> he produced the first Anthrax, which is not a great sounding record. But it does the job, and it's not his worst. And I think it's appropriate for the material. He did Exciter's Violence and Force, which I think is not a great-sounding record. It's um, a bit tamped down, just too messy. And uh, that's also Kennedy. And Exciter's best-sounding album is Long Live the Loud, which Kennedy wasn't anywhere near. That's a guy named Guy Bidmead. Carl Kennedy is also responsible for the total shit guitar sound on the otherwise great uh, Hellstar debut, Burning Star. Which is a great album full of great songs and performances, but man, the guitars sound horrible on that. So he's a drummer. Maybe he just didn't know what the hell he was doing with the guitars. Don't let drummers produce your albums, folks. <laughs> Let's listen to an example of what we're talking about here. This is uh, Possess the Heretic. <laughs> Oh, yeah. 
thing sort of sounds cavernous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's that part in the middle that the snare has like some kind of gate on it or some effect. It's just terrible choice, really. Yeah, it is, and it's like there, there's no attack to it. Um, it's almost like you get this series of artifacts. Yeah, and, and that's so unfortunate because the actual playing is total attack, right? It total super intense. Yeah, I mean, it's fucking possessed in '86. I mean, of course it's going to be. You know, oh well. Great vocals, some great guitar work. There's there's things that we can take away from Beyond the Gates, of course, especially that that multi-fold uh, album packaging as well. Yeah, it's pretty badass. <laughs> yeah, hail eighties possessed. We move on to something definitely even worse and and uh, pretty infamous, ah. I think. <laughs> right? This that like you, you get no endorsement like from me on this. We're talking about Flotsam and Jetsam's Where the Storm Comes Down. Um, what what about let, let's let's we'll get to the production, of course. What about the material? You love do um, sorry, you love uh, No Place for Disgrace almost as much as I do. <laughs> oh God, it, I, it, it's one of my favorite thrash albums. Absolutely, easily. Absolutely, this is like just like super uninspired. Like, I, I mean, I just can't imagine like if I've got some time on my hands and I've got the first two. Lots of Jetsam records that I would ever reach for this. Hmm. Like no matter, I, I, it's just it's a it's a letdown record. Yeah, and you're talking about the material itself. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah even yeah. beyond the sound, I, I don't. I've never liked this record a whole lot. A lot of people say that, and I just feel like I like a, enough of the songs if it just had a different sound. I just it's hard to listen to. It's still to this day. It's there's there's barely any way I can reconcile how it sounds. So well, I think we differ a little bit on the compositions. Yeah. I don't like the material at all. Yeah. Either. Fair enough, man. Yeah. I think there are problems with the production though, that don't help at all, which is everything's so separated sounding on this album. Like it, it sounds unmixed, right? It sounds unfinished, yeah. you know, it sounds like they just didn't bother to, to finish or something, you know, the mix. you know, it may be like the unfinished production sound makes me feel like the material is unfinished too. Well, that's just it. Yeah. Because Eric AK's vocals have to be tough to produce. Cause he's kind of this like stringy, Somewhat thin vocalist. He's great at his best. I mean, no doubt, man. Um, oh, I, just, yeah. I just saw him live recently with Flotsam, you know, two, three weeks ago. He was incredible, or at least as good as you could expect in 2019. I like the guy. I'm a fan. But he, the way he rides over the top of everything and is, and is produced so thin, you know, everything's on such a thin track and it's all so separated that, it, that it's a little painful to listen to here. The worst part of the production is the snare sound. This thing... This rattling, god-awful snare sound. Oh, It's like the precursor to St. Anger. Let's check it out. We'll talk a little bit more after we uh, listen to this abomination.
Hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like that. Um, that snare sound is the precursor to like Saint Anger in terms of just <laughs> overall crappiness. Well, that like, is the. Like, I mean, like you know, the snare is like a very persistent sound on a record. Of right? course, especially like, yeah, really especially a thrash band. Really want to get right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. God, Saint Anger is the king of the worst snare sounds. I don't. Nothing will ever. No, beat it's, it. it is unrivaled. Uh, but but what, yeah, that's a really good call. Definitely a precursor to that. It's it's got the same effect in terms of just uh, tearing down anything that might be good. Um, Saint Anger has way less good than even this album, if it, if, there, if there's anything good. But yeah, just unlistenable. You know, it's weird. Like this album is kind of poorly conceived all around because that album cover. Oh, I mean, God. it just seems like a total afterthought. Like, oh shit, um, the record company oh, asked for an album cover. Yeah, we got a deadline. Um, let's see, uh, Green Skull, uh, Glowing Orange Eyes. Uh, just put a block logo on there because our original logo isn't cool enough, which yes. it actually is because that's an awesome logo. Yeah, just poorly conceived. So horribleness all around, really. Um, this was produced and mixed by Alex Perialis, engineered by five different guys, <laughs> including Perry Alice and Rob Hunter, also of Raven. Now, Rob Hunter, also a drummer. This, this is a problem. Yeah, clearly. As it's you a, said, a, a motif is emerging. As you said, barely any cohesion to. Do you this. think like that? Like the they just kept going through engineers until they found one that was able to make it sound like adequately crappy. <laughs> I, I, like I, man, this does not suck. Next. Yeah, I don't know. And it was it was recorded in a few studios, but mostly uh, in Alex Perialis's, um studio, Pyramid Sound, up in Ithaca, New York. New York, yeah. And he did so much great stuff yeah, up Perry there. Perialis did a lot of shit. Great and and great shit. The one blemish on his record besides this one, I think, is Nuclear Assault Game Over. That guitar tone is so bad, so feeble, so thin. It, it, it's unfortunate because it's a. I love Game Over. Oh hell yeah! I love. I think it's one of those we listen to regardless because we have to. For one, there's no other option. Yeah, it's amazing for me. It, yeah, I hate to like take us down a different path here, but. Didn't Perry Ellis also produce the first propane record? Uh, that's not down a different path because we're talking still about production. It is down a different path because we're talking about propane. Um, right. But propane has two things to their credit that I'll, I'll give them props for. One of which is they had two guys from Crumb Suckers who... Yep. Crumb Suckers' second album is amazing, Beast on My Back. And then... Ser- like, no, like completely under... I, I don't even feel like a lot of people gave it a listen like on the metal side because it was the crumb suckers sure like it's a like super nuanced progressive thrash oh it's great great record that's a great great album that thing continues to to work for me and the second thing i'll give propane props for was they were touring partners with voivod in the uh negatron era so you know anything to do with voivod any reason to bring them up i'll do it (laughs) yeah let's let's move on and let's talk about um Bad snares again. Um, the Swedish band called Eucharist, who Hunter and I worship their second album, Mirror Worlds, and the two tracks from the War compilation. I, right? I was about to say th- those are like my probably my favorite Eucharist. I so wish those there was a are f- insane. I so wish there was a full album of material as good as Predictable End and Wounded and Alone. Um, yeah, those are a ma- like. And anyone listening, if they don't have the Wrong Again Records compilation, I don't know how easy it is to get now. It's fairly but, easy. It's actually fairly cheap okay. too. It's not well, that good, expensive. Good. Then, then everyone go buy it. If yeah, you don't know, because it is literally a snapshot from a very specific time 
in the mid '90s and in, and in Swedish death metal history, um, and it's a just a very special document, I think. And one of few mandatory compilations, I think. Ah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Eucharist featured drummer Daniel Erlinson, who of course went on to play with uh, Arch Enemy, uh, amongst others, and brother of At the Gates drummer Adrian Erlinson. Exactly. Yes. A lot of talent in this band, though, and um, you know, Mirror World's just as incredible. But uh, we're talking about their first album, of Velvet Creation. And um, this was produced by a guy named Frank Larnamo, engineered and mixed by him as well. And wherever you are, Larnamo, you got some explaining to do. Uh, th- I looked up this guy. His resume includes production and engineering credits on recordings by Decameron, Ablaze My Sorrow, and the, the third Armageddon record, which isn't nearly as interesting and awesome as yeah. the first Armageddon record. So I guess his resume kind of speaks for itself. Um, some lower blaze level. My so- you, you had me at a blaze my sorrow. <laughs> Did I? What, yeah. what, what do you mean by had? Th- that you were trying to convince me that this guy sucked. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's second tier stuff, you know. Um, yeah, at, at, at best. A- appropriate to play this right after the Flotsam song. We'll just go right into it. This is a song called Greeting Immortality from Velvet Creation.
shades of St. Anger there as well? For sure. <laughs> it's a very annoying snare drum sound. Yeah, there's yeah. even like that drum break there, and um, it probably... <laughs> They probably regret that now that they uh, you know, have the, got the finished product. Like, oops. Probably. That sounds yeah. horrible. Do you remember the Lycathia like, Aflame uh, album, Elvinephris? Yeah. That one had a really tragic snare. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's and another... he hit the snare a lot. Yeah. Uh, that's one blemish on that otherwise pretty great record. The other one is just that it's way too long. Oh, it's super long. Kind of like uh, Gorgot's Obscura. You just don't want that kind of material that much right. uh, for that kind of duration. But, uh, yeah, anyway, um, thanks for listening. I think uh, – I guess we gave, like, a, a decent overview of some of some productions that are – they're all kind of bad in their own special way, but the, some of them work, some of them don't. So many more we could mention. But, um, well, I think we'll cap it at that. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. You might have some suggestions. You probably do. We hear a lot of suggestions from our listeners, and we, we love it. We welcome it. Um, yeah, absolutely. We'd really like to hear what people think about um, other records that, uh, though flawed production-wise, uh, might work for them, or just some of the like truly bad ones. And again, just to recap, we... Uh, we tried to feature bands that should have known better or had better resources. And we're kind of glad some of them got messed up. Like born again is still my favorite example. We do look forward to hearing from you. Uh, we can be reached at radical research podcast at gmail.com. You can go to radical research.org. You can always check us out at Facebook, even Instagram and Twitter. If you're that sort of person. Yeah. Next episode. Radical Research 34 is the one that really had to happen. The imminent episode, Anacruzis. Yes. Uh, one of our favorite bands, actually a band that was sort of a foundational element of um, our early friendship. Um, finding two people that love Anacruzis that much. <laughs> um, a St. Louis-based band uh, made four albums for Metal Blade. Extinguished all too quickly, but picked up. Um, by Ken Nardi, um, who in uh, 2014 um, released a collection of songs that uh, it's a distance of, what, about 21 years? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Um, like, really, just a super, super interesting evolution. Not a perfect discography, but their last two albums, for me especially, are two of the most perfect sort of 90s, uh, just metal records. Um, they escape just about every um, possible categorization. It's easy to go for thrash, but they're bigger and and what than that. Um, and and Jeff and I cannot wait to share them with you. Yeah, uh, yeah. We really hope that more of you don't know them than know them, uh, because it would be our our privilege to evangelize on their behalf. Absolutely, and we will do that regardless. Uh, well, we might touch on, uh, we'll definitely touch on all four albums, but we might just touch on the Ken Nardi album just a little bit because I think that worked as a kind of PS Anacruzis, I, I totally agree. Anacruzis album because it would, you know, it might as well have been. Join us then, keep metal weird. <laughs>